Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. I've just returned from a week on the road meeting customers and partners at Lynx conferences in Seoul and Singapore. I'm very excited to be back with all of you and to have the opportunity this week to speak with my colleague, Ethan McMahon, who's the lead researcher on the highly anticipated Chainalysis State of Web3 report. Ethan and I discussed some of the big topics covered in the report, including adoption trends of new layer one and layer two blockchains, the rise of decentralized exchanges, and identity, staking, gaming, and the metaverse. If you want more on these topics, check out the show notes for links to download the full report or watch the on-demand webinar where Ethan and Kim Grauer dive into the data. Ethan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Been looking forward to this chat. We've got, I think by the time this podcast actually publishes, the Web3 report will be out. We've been teasing this for a while, kind of broad ecosystem analysis, looking at all things going on in Web3. Before we get to that, maybe to introduce you to the audience a little bit, I always like to ask, you know, what's your crypto origin story? How did, how did you get into this uh, weird world of blockchain and cryptocurrency? Got involved in crypto, let's say mid-2017, right as things started to ramp up, right? I think everyone's eyes start, got drawn to Bitcoin and Litecoin and Ethereum and all of that. And I got involved and then by some stroke of luck, was able to sell right before things came crashing down. And I'll always use that as my claim to fame. Ever since that point in time, I've been involved in the space in some way, shape or form. And then Chainalysis and I, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to work here and you know, it's been amazing. Well, there we go. Did you have such fortune this time around with the uh, the big run up and the and the price decline? Not as good, but most recently, you know, things have kind of been on the downturn for the past six or so months. I uh, got out around February. I think that's a decent timing. You know what? You're going to have a second career here publishing a newsletter, giving uh, giving investment advice. We can't give investment advice on this podcast, though. So maybe we'll uh, we'll shift gears to the to the Web3 report. One of the big takeaways for me reading uh, reading this content was it seems like the ecosystem is starting to move beyond purely currency, right? Like the big critique on crypto is, oh, it's just, you know, speculation, people trying to make a quick buck. It seems like, you know, Web3 is a rebrand attempt by the ecosystem at large, but there's actually a lot of legitimate stuff happening here that that is not pure speculation. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you take a look at a number of different metrics, whether that's just the uh, amount of volume, transaction volume that's going strictly through Bitcoin as a percentage of the overall uh, transaction volume. And you've seen that shift pretty drastically from, say, five years ago to now more evenly split between things like smart contracts or smart uh, stable coins, things that enable individuals or crypto users to interact with actual services on various blockchains. So yeah, I would I would definitely say that's the case. Things our CEO, Michael Groninger, likes to say is in this most recent cycle, the emergence of Web3 kind of characterized as crypto got content. So we're starting to see, you know, art and music and gaming. We're seeing, you know, virtual land all popping up as things people are actually starting to interact with via these cryptocurrency infrastructure platforms. What did you see kind of big takeaways as you were working on the Web3 report in this area? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. If you go back a couple of years at this point, we had the emergence of DeFi, right? And that allowed individuals to use all sorts of traditional finance tools or services in the digital world, right? And that's exploded and is still very much a hot space. 
And then just about a year ago, we saw something similar happen with NFTs or these non-fungible tokens. And I think we'll continue to see areas like that of gaming is, is a new area, which is getting use of NFTs. Entertainment, for instance, will start to make use of all sorts of services within the digital economy. One of the big areas I thought maybe we would step into is the shift away from Bitcoin dominance. I was shocked looking at the trend line in the report. Folks will be able to to probably grab this in the show notes. It's been steady decline and Bitcoin is now, you know, well under half of all the, the transaction volume we can see on chain and cryptocurrency. That was actually a surprising number to me. What do you think's driving that? Well, I think you have to think about the purpose of what Bitcoin was designed for. Unlike some of the other blockchains like Ethereum, for instance, it wasn't specifically designed to have services built on top of it, as we'll probably talk about a little bit more is the difference between an L1 and an L2. So Bitcoin functions as an L1 and Ethereum is also an L1, but unlike Bitcoin, it has that smart contract functionality that allows it, or at least, be, at least better allows it to have services built on top of it. And so in the, in the case of this shift away from Bitcoin in terms of total transaction volume, I think it's really just the playing out of people recognizing how much can be done on top of chains like Ethereum with you know all these different services that we've kind of just been mentioning. That was one of my first realizations getting into the space kind of a year and a half ago. It was like, oh, wow, Ethereum is highly programmable. The term smart contract, I think, actually undersells it a little bit. I come out of a software development background most recently, and like that area actually really appealed to me. I was like, oh, we can build here. Whereas Bitcoin seemed like the store of value narrative behind Bitcoin makes a ton of sense to me. Like I get anti-inflationary, I get, you know, hold forever. Like those principles make sense, but it's much less exciting. I don't have gold bricks sitting under my desk here either for kind of the same reason. Like the appeal is less, but as you know, somebody who fancies himself a technologist like Ethereum and related chains where the intent is actually for layers to be created on top seem way more exciting. The data you've collected here seems to back up that I'm not the only one that feels that way. No, not at all. And another stat that we were able to you know, pull together essentially shows the, the number of unique wallets that have been sending to services on a particular blockchain. And since, let's say, early 2020, uh, Ethereum has actually surpassed Bitcoin. So that's just another data point for one's reference to see that Ethereum really has so much to offer and chains like Ethereum for, have a lot to offer. It's a diversity of users, not just a few deep-pocketed ones. And I think that's consistent. You know, the folks over at Andreessen Horowitz published a State of the Cryptoverse is maybe the title of it. We'll get the right one in the show notes. But they had an interesting chart in there about the number of developers working on each of the chains. And Ethereum had massively greater numbers than anyone else, which I thought was uh, an interestingly strong endorsement. But maybe shifting gears a little bit, you touched on one of the other topics in the report that got me really interested, was trying to compare adoption and traction both amongst competing L1 chains and also some of the the L2s. Maybe you could walk us through the summary of what you found in in that analysis. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we wanted to take a look at you know, in the broader scheme of crypto, you have so many different L1s that are trying to either compete for market share or accomplish something that a different blockchain hasn't necessarily been able to do. So you mentioned with Bitcoin not having as many L2s or services that can be built on top of it. Ethereum has been able to tackle that and to date has probably the largest ecosystem of services. But one drawback that many users complain about is the high level of fees. And there's all sorts of talk about an Ethereum merge happening from ETH 1.0 to ETH 2.0 and that a decrease in fees would come with that. But to our research seems to indicate that early signs would point to fees remaining high 
And it serves as a detriment to any sort of user, crypto user who's trying to you know, use a blockchain that doesn't have deep pockets because you end up paying a high percentage in fees. Let's say something over 20% of your, of your total transaction value would go to something like just the fees. So it doesn't really make sense as much for some users to use Ethereum. And that's where blockchains like Solana or the Binance Smart Chain really come into play and really become attractive because they also offer services on top of the L1 that can do many of the same things that Ethereum can do. That 20% number was kind of shocking to me because again, the early narrative that I heard about was like, oh, crypto is powerful because one, it's permissionless. So you and I can exchange value without any intermediaries from anywhere in the world, as long as we've got an internet connection. And two, you know, by removing that middleman, we price the exchange uh, much more fairly. But at least to me, 20% sounds like a lot, almost unreasonable for a lot of transactions. Absolutely. I mean, I think it just goes to show like if you, let's just say your transaction total value is $100, that does that seems infeasible. It's just not practical to be using Ethereum so yeah. much as it would be if you, you know, multiply that by 100, right? Because at that yeah. point then prices out the individuals the, the Ethereum blockchains from time to time. And I think we saw this recently in um, OpenSea made a big announcement about migrating from the Wyvern smart contract infrastructure onto their own, I think they call it open port smart contract. And the, the specific goal was to reduce the fees that people who were listing digital assets for sale in their marketplace were, were paying. It's definitely a problem. We broke down Ethereum fees by category and NFTs most recently have been the, the largest contributor to total amount that's being paid in Ethereum fees. And then speaking from personal experience, prior to this migration using OpenSea, you, you're likely to pay hundreds of dollars in fees and it's pretty prohibitive. So that's obviously, you know, I think driving a lot of people to observe a potential market opportunity. You see that with competing chains. The report goes into a bunch of analysis on different vectors. But there's also the transaction throughput challenge that seems like we're all here encouraging adoption of this technology, new and better use cases. I think what that actually means is those fees are going to go up on certain chains. So how do we think about like transaction volume, even distinct from the fee structure? Yeah, definitely. So chains like Bitcoin and Ethereum have not prioritized speed. And, you know, in terms of if you look at transactions per second, which tends to be kind of the often quoted metric, I think the two of them, correct me if I'm wrong, Ian, they're kind of in the single digits or teens. Is yeah. But if you move to a chain like Solana, Solana is somewhere between 1500 and 3500, which is you know, multiples greater. And then even from there, other chains have if not in production, in the mainnet, as they call it, in testnet, have been able to achieve numbers at that magnitude, if not higher. And you see a number of, as I mentioned earlier, a number of these upstart L1s really trying to focus on one particular area, whether that's throughput or the speed angle, and trying to be the best in that particular niche. As you start to look at some of these emerging use cases, you know, we've got a whole section in the report talking about identity you know, you're no longer talking about, well, how, you know, how many swipes of, of a credit card, the cryptocurrency equivalent, we need to match the, you know, the visa processing network in terms of, of throughput to be considered legitimate. It's like, well, no, if I'm talking about the number of user authentications that happen across the entire internet every single day, like, and you add that to all the credit card transactions, like all of a sudden you're getting to really, really big numbers. I think we're, we're heading into a scalability problem. So it's good to see there's L1s popping up that, that offer this capability. There's also the L2s coming online. Any tidbits or facts of note around the, the L2 ecosystem in the analysis you all did? 
Well, actually, kind of tying it into what you the point you're just making on digital identity, I think there's a pretty notable project on the Ethereum blockchain called the uh, Ethereum Name Service, which I think is almost in some ways trying to tackle this. So essentially, Ethereum Name Service, you as a user are able to purchase uh, your own domain, much as you would the .com domain. And in these cases, it tends to be .eth or you know, .eth. And that's your domain. That's your crypto wallet is then attached to that. And in some ways... Hopefully the draw essentially is that that becomes your digital identity. And the advantage to that would be it being more secure because it's on the blockchain. You are less liable to be one of these hundreds of millions of records in one of these data breaches that happens all the time, right? And in addition to that, I think who really likes having to remember all of these different passwords? I think that's the... (laughs) How many times a day do you have to log into something or check your phone to do the single sign-on option? And the hope is that tools like this or services like this will bring us to a point where we're able to more you know succinctly log on to a service i'm fascinated by the identity topic because there are a couple elements to it that i think is probably the next killer use case for all the blockchain infrastructure that's being built out one you know identity is not a, a strict concept of like the information contained in your passport right? Name, date of birth, an identifying set of physical attributes. Like in the online world, there's lots of identities, like the identity you have when you play video games, the identity when you shop at an e-commerce site, the identity when you go to work and you need to get on email and Slack and associated kind of work productivity tools. You know, today we, we have these discreetly, but they're not necessarily well managed. They kind of blend together in a lot of cases. You know, if you look at my browser, I probably have cookies for all of those services that I'd rather have them discreet. Right. I don't want people necessarily that I interact with in the gaming world or in the social media world to connect to my e-commerce buying habits or to my work activity. And I think all that's gotten like very jumbled together in the, the Web2 world. And so the ENS domains and some of the other capabilities that are getting built out there, soulbound tokens is another aspect of this, like a non-transferable, non-fungible token that seems pretty interesting. There's the digital identifiers, which are, are yet another type of identity attribute that you can cryptographically attest to and, and associate into your wallet. I'm fascinated by this. What's the scale and adoption around the ENS service? I haven't looked at this lately. Like, are people actually using it for interesting things? Interesting things is, is debatable, but it's definitely been a, it's definitely being adopted. And in, even in the midst of the current crypto market drawdown, we seem to have continued uptick in volume that's being transferred via the ENS contract. So just to put some numbers to it, there have been about over a million domains that have been purchased by something like 400,000 unique owners. And just in the past two months, they've kind of been banner months, at least in dollar terms. I think if anything, this particular, you know, ENS, but also the digital identity is definitely something that will continue to be popular, if not continue to heat up. That's exciting. I mean, a million domains, 400,000 unique wallets, like it's definitely not a passing fad. That sounds like something that's pretty real. Do you have ENS domain you want to share? Have you bought one? I have bought one, but I'll keep it to myself. <laughs> You're keeping yeah. it quiet? All right, all right, all right. You got secret plans for it in the future. We'll uh, we'll, we'll keep that off the podcast. Well, definitely definitely an area to watch as, as Web3 continues to evolve. One of the other stats that blew me away was this comparison of decentralized exchanges, DEXs, against centralized exchanges by on-chain transaction volume activity. That number was wild. You want to talk 
a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think it's important to note that for one, yes, definitely over time, DEXs have surpassed centralized exchanges in terms of the amount of on-chain transaction volume. It's important to note though, that centralized exchanges do tend to do a lot of their own trading off book, right? So that definitely counts for some amount of volume, but at the same time, the mere fact that decentralized services or the decentralized versions of these have surpassed. And at one point it was, I think, an 80 to 20% dynamic in favor of DEXs. It's since gone back to about 55% DEX, 45% centralized. But that mere shift showcases just how much the industry has has shifted towards these decentralized versions of things. You know, it blows me away. Like I'm far from a crypto trading expert, but it seems like there's a massive complexity step up going from opening an account someplace like Kraken or crypto.com to the, you know, actually interacting with the DAX. Like I have to set up MetaMask. I have to get some asset like Ethereum into my MetaMask. I have to find the web app of, of the DAX that I want to interact with, connect to my wallet, which is like a, always a scary prospect. Like I'm authorizing a contract that I may or may not really understand what it does. And then from there, you know, there's a huge just layer of complexity around depending on what I'm actually trying to do. You know, if I'm just swapping one asset for another, that's relatively straightforward. But most of these platforms have a variety of staking and lending. And this is before you even get into things like cross-chain bridges. It's definitely not for the casual, non-technical, non-experienced user, I guess is kind of what I'm saying. I would agree, but I would also say that with a lot of things, it just takes that first step. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> You're saying I'm, I'm underestimating people. I to give the audience uh, benefit of the doubt on this one. Yeah, I think so. Because if you look at things like to be involved with NFTs, at least to date, you, you need a crypto wallet, right? And there's just been so much hype around that space. You rewind a couple of years, so much hype around DeFi, right? I think people are drawn into this space and they will be willing to take those initial set up a MetaMask kind of steps. And then past that, once you're onboarded to a particular platform, let's say some sort of decentralized exchange, the advantage at that point though, is you have so much more available to you in terms of the number of trading pairs that you can you know, interact with versus a centralized exchange, you're probably limited to a handful of fiat to crypto pairs, uh, and then maybe just the top L1 pairs. Let's just say you're a passive crypto observer, but you hear about a notable L2, you're kind of forced to get involved with the decentralized space because you're not going to be able to do that on the centralized side. You're making a great point, right? It makes me think back to the early days of the internet where AOL was kind of the friendly on-ramp for everyone. And a lot of people argued that AOL would be all anyone ever would need, right? The casual internet user needed that walled garden of protected, you know, restricted content, limited set of services. And I think what turned out to be the case is, no, 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 people want the unrestricted, free and open access on the internet. And that obviously won out over time. AOL and some of their competing products uh, faded away by the early 2000s. You're probably right. Probably is a similar situation here where the choice wins out over maybe slightly higher complexity at first first use. You know, thinking about DEXs, like Obviously, you know, asset swaps are one of the obvious cases there where I want to turn my Ethereum into DAI, or maybe I want to move an asset across from Ethereum to an L2 chain on top of Ethereum or even to a different L1. Lending and staking are probably where most of the, the money is being made here. Uh, and, I, and I guess borrowing is, is the other use case. Talk a little bit about, you know, maybe some of the volume and activity that we're, we're seeing and what are some of the interesting trends happening in that area? 
Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we were able to uncover in our work was by L1, taking a look at the amount that was staked on a particular blockchain, as well as the amount and yield that a particular individual get if they were to stake on that particular chain. If you take a look at the total value that is being staked, Ethereum is actually third, and it's it's third, second to Solana and the Cardano blockchain. And that I think is pretty fascinating because if in, in market cap terms, Ethereum dominates both of those two. So it's interesting to see that Solana has something close to 12 and a half billion, at least at the time of the publishing that is being staked. And Ethereum is closer to around 10 billion. And then in terms of yields, there's the yields that people can get. It's kind of all across the board. You could see things in the low single digits to high 20 percented, you know, and that itself is fascinating. And I think it's a choice on the user's part, right? If you stay with Ethereum, you're probably going to get something in the low single digits, but you have the kind of increased sense of safety because that's a, the second highest market cap blockchain, right? Whereas if you were to go with a smaller blockchain, you might get larger yield, but at the same time, you're, you may not feel as secure in, in what you're doing. There's a ton of complexity and you're making me think we need a whole episode on staking, lending, yield farming. We could we could talk for hours on that topic. But I, I wanted to hit on one other item before we wrapped. And this is really, you know, gaming in the metaverse, which I think has been, uh, you know, for a lot of people when they hear Web3, uh, it's kind of synonymous with this, this metaverse concept. And I think at the core of the metaverse is gaming. What are we seeing in terms of these these play to earn games? Like what's happening out there? There's been a number of upstarts in this space. And what's, I think, most telling about what's to come is traditional gaming studios getting involved in the gaming space because that really solidifies that this is real, right? Because a large gaming studio is coming in, makes seeing that an NFT could be used to trade assets, in-game assets. It really showcases just how valuable this could potentially become. And one of the interesting things that we were able to uncover was around digital real estate. So imagine in games, you have a plot of land that you as a player can own. Let's just say you picked a particularly valuable plot of land and then decide to sell it. We were actually able to come up with an index of sales like that and then try to compare it to the physical, non-digital real estate. And at least in the short amount of time that we've been able to observe metaverse type games, digital real estate is quite a hot place to, to own. This is interesting. So people might have heard of, of some of the more popular ones. Like I think of Decentraland as being one, you know, another one that got a lot of notoriety in the last couple months was The Other Side, which is a project coming out of the Yuga Labs group. But there's quite a few of these. So you're saying benchmark of real world land, like the, the Case-Shiller Index, comparing that against uh, a similar index model of the appreciation of, of metaverse land, metaverse outperforms. Yeah, it's a short sample period, but at the same time, just in this little bit of time, it's it's not even close. <laughs> so definitely not financial advice. <laughs> it sounds like maybe I should put my real world house on the market and tell my wife we're moving into the metaverse. Do you have the VR headset ready to go? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Come on, honey. We're uh, we're trading up. We're buying something in the metaverse. You know, one of the one of the projects I've been following a little bit in this space the category of uh, move to earn and step in. I think you buy an NFT that represents a pair of running shoes and then you're actually earning tokens based on you know how many steps you take every day. Is that, have I got that idea right? 
that I think that, yeah, you summed it up perfectly. I think it's built on the Solana blockchain as well. And I think it just goes to showcase just how dynamic crypto games can be, right? We found a way to incentivize individuals to exercise, which is awesome, right? And as someone who also likes to exercise, I think I would 100%, even if I wasn't particularly motivated to exercise, I think adding on the ability to earn something from that, it's just, it unlocks a whole world. It's a pretty interesting space. Like we see critics of crypto, I think, talk about the negatives of putting a financial value on every interaction. And I, I can definitely see, you know, the logic behind those arguments, but you make a great point here with, in the areas of health, like as a society, we could all get healthier, right? We could spend less time in front of our computers, maybe eat a little bit better, spend a little more time exercising. And we can probably all like see those messages and think, oh, I should do that. It does seem like an opportunity where attaching financial value to actually making those better choices might be potentially better for everyone. The tokenomics behind how all that works, I'm, I'm I'm still a little bit uncertain of, you know, how do, how does the game creator ultimately make money and, and how do those payouts keep happening? But I think it's it's certainly a space to watch. Absolutely. I guess I would be the optimist here and say that we'll get there. We got to work through some things, <laughs> but we're, we're going to get there. <laughs> oh, we're we're all optimists here. I'm, I'm with you. Like the criticisms are real, but I think the opportunity is massive. So it's a great view to have. Ethan, thanks so much for joining us on the show. This has been a lot of fun. I learned a bunch. By the time this publishes, I think the Web3 report will be out. So we, we can grab a copy and, uh, and dive even further into the details. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly, so if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Here's something to consider while you wait for our next one. There's been a lot of talk lately about staked Ethereum and the upcoming Ethereum merge, where the Ethereum mainnet chain will merge with the beacon chain and move Ethereum from a proof-of-work blockchain to a proof-of-stake chain. Did you know the staking contract was first deployed October 14, 2020? And by November 27th, it received 16,384 deposits of 32 staked E, which enabled the beacon chain to start producing blocks on December 1st of 2020. Finally, don't forget to grab your copy of the Web3 report. Links to download are in the show notes.